Welcome back to the Jacob Wool Show, Thursday, January 19th. A lot of news to discuss today. We're here a little bit early. Uh, timing is such today that I just don't have a choice. have to start up the show just a bit early. We begin, of course, with the big report out this morning that Alec Baldwin has been charged now with involuntary manslaughter along with the armorer on the set of Rust. You all remember this incident, uh, Helena Hutchins, rising star in the film industry, a cinematographer, was behind the camera at a time that the gun was pointed towards the camera and then was fired. Now, this mishap on set, and that's what it appears it is, some sort of heinous mishap, is one in a long series of mishaps of this type in Hollywood, and they all have one thing in common. Now, this is analysis you're not going to hear anywhere else. This is why I do this broadcast. I bring you information that you can't hear anywhere else. Now, when mishaps like this happen on sets in Hollywood, they have one thing in common as of late, and that is that they happen with revolvers of one kind or another. In this case, an old style, I think it was a Colt single action army uh, revolver, and uh, it was pointed towards the camera. And this seems to be the case most often, and there's a particular reason for this. Uh, generally speaking, in Hollywood, the prop guns that are used are carefully adapted, and they have installed in them what are known as blank firing adapters to fire blanks. If you don't know what a blank is, it's just a uh, basically a round of ammunition minus the bullet, uh, crimped or closed at the end in some fashion, uh, so that some noise happens, uh, maybe a, a, a tiny bit of recoil happens, not much, because, of course, you don't have the equal and opposite effect uh, that is generated by the mass traveling down the barrel, as you do with a, a real firing of a, of a gun. Uh, but maybe just a small bit, a small flash, perhaps, that can be added in post-production a bit more. And most firearms that are used on a Hollywood set are prop guns from a prop gun agency. There are a couple of them out there, a couple of big ones. And they have blank firing adapters, meaning that the firearm can cycle blanks uh, to the extent that it's a semi-automatic firearm. This might mean that the springs have to be lightened, the chamber might have to be reshaped, gas system might have to work differently. If it's traditionally a blowback firearm, well, it's probably not going to work because you don't have a, a strong effect of, of a blowback taking place at all. But that's generally how it works. Now, there's one exception to that, or one main exception to that, and that is revolvers. Revolvers really will fire will, will fire a lot of different sorts of rounds, presuming that the round fits in the cylinder and that the bullet, if it's an actual round, fits down the barrel, uh, revolver will pretty much fire it. That's why you have, for instance, uh, revolvers like the famous uh, or infamous Taurus Judge, which will fire 45 Long Colt, uh, but it will also fire 410 shot shells. Or they make uh, what they call snake shot shells in various revolver calibers that fire basically shot or, or some BBs out of the barrel. If you happen to deal with snakes, makes it easier to shoot snakes. So that's the way revolvers work. And so they don't require these sorts of adapters that would make them only able to fire blanks. 
you know, so much so that a real round wouldn't fit in it. It would, it just wouldn't work. It wouldn't chamber. It would be impossible to fire a real round through a firearm that has a blank firing adapter. Oftentimes, another feature that will be is that the the primer for the blank firing adapter in the blanks will be off center. So it just won't work with a regular round. Not so with revolvers. Now, there's another feature to revolvers that becomes important here. Oftentimes in movies, they have a shot in which they are sort of looking towards or looking down the barrel of the gun. Somebody's pointing the gun at the camera, in other words, to to bring somebody into the eyes of, of the subject who's having the gun pointed at them in the film. Well, one thing about a revolver is that depending on how the camera is focused and how far away it is and all of that, you can see the other rounds in the cylinder surrounding the initial round, assuming it's not a percussion cap and ball revolver, in which case it would be harder to see that because they'd have wadding and it would be just a, a lead ball. But if they're firing you know, enclosed cartridges, then you're going to be able to see that. When you look, you're going to be able to see it in the other cylinders and perhaps down the barrel itself. Again, depending on lighting and the way the camera is focused and all that. And so, oftentimes what happens on a film set is that they have to create with revolvers some version of a dummy round that will not fire and hurt anybody, but that is a dummy round. In other words, there's there's bullets in it. Those bullets won't fire per se, but you can see them such that you create the realistic effect when you're looking down the barrel of the revolver. A number of years ago, there was another mishap and the names of of the exact mishap escaped me. uh, But it was a, a situation in which they were again filming with revolvers like this. They had to do some shots one day in which they had dummy rounds. They were firing the dummy rounds, cocking, firing, getting the shot several times. Well, what had happened is that during these shots, the dummy round or one of the dummy rounds or maybe multiple of them, the way that they were made, somebody, basically what happened is they they bought real ammunition. They pulled the bullet out of the casing with a set of pliers. They poured out the powder and then they put the bullet back in to the casing somehow. And then those were going to be their dummy rounds. Well, in one of those shots when they were firing towards the camera with nobody behind the camera in this case given what had happened is that the the primers were still in the casings and the primer was able to generate enough force to to launch one of the bullets that had already been taken out once and put back in so it wasn't exactly you know super tightly in there out of the casing and into the barrel they didn't notice that it was in the barrel they then go on to the next day they put then blanks in this same revolver, not realizing that there's a bullet lodged in the barrel in this previous instance. And the blank had enough force to launch that bullet that was lodged in the barrel out of the barrel and kill someone on the set. This is a separate incident besides from Rust. And so what I mean to say is that with movies, when you have these sorts of mishaps... They tend to be in recent years and recent decades with revolvers for a very particular technical reason. Now, do, do, do those technical considerations mean that 
you can never use a revolver on a set in a movie? Of course not. There's plenty of revolvers on sets in movies. What it does mean is that the, the necessity for diligence is all the more critical. It's all the more critical. And then you look at who was hired to be the actual uh, weapons handler, the armor for this movie, a Miss Hannah Gutierrez Reed. I believe she was 22 at the time, several years back, maybe a little older, a little younger. Her father was a famous armor in Hollywood, so you have a nepotism effect likely taking place, almost certainly. And you have a situation in which something can go with a revolver in particular very wrong. That's just not going to happen with a semi-automatic pistol prop gun, with a semi-automatic rifle prop gun, uh, with most other prop guns that are involved on a set. Brandon Lee, I think you're referring to. Yes, I think that name rings a bell. That was the incident I was talking about where the, where the bullet got lodged into the barrel. Somebody said here, actual bullets are forbidden from film sets. However, investigators found several other lead bullets mingled with inert dummy rounds. Well, I don't know that actual bullets or what they mean here, live rounds of ammunition, I guess, are forbidden from film sets. I don't know what they mean by that in this LA Times article shown on screen. For those of you listening, this is the LA Times article entitled Alec Baldwin and Weapon Handler to be charged with manslaughter in deadly rust shooting. I don't know what they mean by banned. Banned within certain unions, banned by certain studios, banned by law. Because to my knowledge, there are a fair number of movies in which live guns were used very carefully, very diligently in order to imbue realism. Because again, like I said, one of the issues with not using live rounds is that you have no recoil or virtually no recoil. All you have is a recoil that is generated by the slide moving back and forth, which you could have with, say, an airsoft gun or something just as easily. Uh, because you don't have that kinetic energy or I guess, you know, potential energy traveling out of the end of the barrel. I guess it's still kinetic. It just hasn't been, it hasn't hit anything yet. So you don't have the the opposite effect in the other direction. And thus there's not real recoil. So then the actors have to fake it. And sometimes they overdo it. And sometimes they underdo it. And it just, it can present issues depending on the type of movie that you're looking to film. Uh, so I know that, for instance, uh, there was real shooting that took place last I checked. For instance, on the set of Lone Survivor. Now, again, very diligently, obviously no people downrange, only equipment, only cameras, only very, very carefully supervised. Uh, but I've heard of instances where real guns are used. But the bottom line is, when I look at this... Um, you know, having some minimal experience with things like this, doing Predator DC. What I can tell you is that whether you think you're dealing with prop guns, whether you think you're dealing with real guns, whether you think you're dealing with a an airsoft gun. I mean, growing up, uh, we had, you know, airsoft guns and, and all of that. And, you know, you, you sort of have to 
in my view, a best practice would be now you can do airsoft wars and things like this. Obviously, kids do that. We did that when we were kids and all that. But when you're running a professional set, when you're in a professional setting and preferably any setting, really, you just want to follow the gun safety rules as they exist, as though you were dealing with real firearms. And, and any deviation from that, and there may be a necessity for a deviation from that based around a shot that you want to do um, in which you have a particular wide angle shot and one group of people shooting at another group of people, like a civil war battle scene or something. Any deviation from that whatsoever has to be beyond carefully controlled. In fact, one of the good rules of thumb is is a buddy system, for instance. And so what should happen beforehand is that the actor should be trained by a competent, you know, third party outside of the production onset professional to be able to know the difference of what a loaded gun versus an unloaded gun looks like and how to check and see. There should be the armorer. And then there should be a, a third-party safety supervisor, which is, which is a person who is also trained in order to see, is a gun loaded? Is it unloaded? Is there ammunition? Is the barrel clear of obstructions, which is particularly relevant, even if you're firing blanks? Because if somebody puts something down the barrel and you fire a blank, guess what? It's not a blank anymore. And that third-party safety professional, and perhaps a, even a third person, should be able to double-check the armorer's work triple check the armor's work. And then when the armor pr- presents whoever is actually going to be handling the firearm, or in this case, uh, what's thought to be a, 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 a dummy firearm, that actor should be said, you know, okay, I'm checking. It's unloaded. Do you see? It, you verify. No rounds in the chamber. It's unloaded. Yes, they're actually looking. They're actually paying attention. This is supervised by a safety supervisor. That's the way you have to do this. And then beyond that, given that this was not a wide-angled shot, it's not as though we thought, you know, we're, we're firing blanks back and forth or this sort of thing, or maybe it's a dummy round, or maybe it's this, or maybe it's that. Why is there a person behind the camera? I presume they're making this film uh, shooting with Ari Alexa cameras. Uh, looked like that's what they were shooting with in the kind of shots that I had seen from the set. Maybe they were using red cameras, but my recollection is they were using Ari Alexa cameras. In either event, there's plenty of ways in which you can operate the camera remotely, monitor the the stream, the, the footage remotely, change things remotely. Why was that person downrange from the barrel of the gun? Again, all of this speaks to low budget. All of this speaks to um, no money being spent on safety. And it's the first thing you spend money on, frankly. It's, it's the first thing you spend money on. And if you don't have the money for it, then you just don't make the film. You just don't go out there and do it. So that's the update. Apparently, both of them to face charges of involuntary manslaughter. Uh, the Hutchins family, the family of the woman killed, uh, Releasing a statement thanking the district attorney. This now, geez, uh, coming up on you know a year and a half afterwards. I guess this was October twenty first of twenty twenty one that this took place. 
We're now into January uh, 19 here of 2023. I want to talk a bit here, though, about what's happening in the AI world. I've long been an AI skeptic. Very few of these things strike me as being actual intelligence. They're good for some things and uh, really good at those things. I think the AI business has gotten a big boost and really been highlighted before the public with this new chat GPT tool. But they may have gotten out ahead of their skis, and I want to talk a bit about that. But first, in a similar topic along with AI and this whole thread of AI, uh, coming out of the Davos meeting of the World Economic Forum, uh, Alex Karp was interviewed on CNBC. It's hard to catch the full interviews. They don't really publish them. Maybe what you have to do is subscribe to that, that CNBC Plus. Maybe they do the full interviews there. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should actually subscribe to that product. Because they're all cut off and you just get these short clips on YouTube. But the short clips are usually what all you all you need. But perhaps I should be subscribed to that so that I can get you guys longer clips. Although it's probably a little bit difficult to scrape them off of the site. Uh, you have to use OBS or something, I guess. Or maybe they have copy protection even against that. I don't know. In any event, Alex Karp was speaking at the meeting in an interview with Al, uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin. He's the CEO of Peter Thiel's company, Palantir. Palantir is a military contractor that offers software, uh, principally to the Department of Defense, the Intel community. Uh, they're known as AI, and they try to really make it sound mystical what it is that they do. Uh, what they do is not all that mystical. Their real problem and the reason their stock's trading down from 40 to like $6 is because their product is not all that differentiated. Uh, GDIT or General Dynamics uh, IT offers the same sort of IT products to the government. Lockheed actually offers a similar product to the government. Um, Oracle has a similar product that they offer. Microsoft is uh, about to release a similar product. And, and what these products do is this. Let's say you're trying to um, identify who's involved with a terrorist network. One of the dynamics of the NSA doing the bulk collection that they do, and one of the problems with the CIA collecting as much intelligence as they do, and the FBI uh, snooping the way that they do, is that they're actually inundated with data. They collect too much information. It's, it's like drinking out of a fire hose. It's too much intel. And so if you're doing an investigation and trying to, say, locate someone, as I've done before, what you have to do is, you know, you, you imagine, just imagine, for instance, like you see in the movies, um, the bulletin board up. And uh, you have, you know, the picture here and the bank account there and this there, and you have the threads between them and the thumbtacks and it's all tied together. Well, you have different programs that allow you to just digitize that uh, bulletin board per se. The cheapo one that I use, it's pretty uh, capable though, is called Maltego, M-A-L-T-E-G-O. But it's not the only product. There's tons of products that do this. It just allows you to have that bulletin board be on a computer, which makes it kind of unwieldy if you're one person. But you, if you're working together with other people from multiple locations, multiple agencies, they're all plugging in their data. It allows you to map it and visualize it on a big board. And you can Google Maltigo if you want to see what this looks like. It, it looks exactly like one of those bulletin boards with different threads, different nodes. And 
the trouble becomes so how do you boil that all down and, and, and figure out what to make of it? How do you turn it into anything useful? Well, that is where artificial intelligence is actually quite useful. When you have a data set that you're, you're sure about the propriety of, you're not feeding it junk data. The data is clean. The data is good. The data is as accurate as possible. And then you can, for example, take 100 different interviews that the CIA has done with 100 different sources, upload the transcripts, and then pull out a common thread. It would take a person or a team of people weeks to do that. The AI might be able to help point that person in the right direction, at least where to go to try to do that, in a matter of one minute. That's what Palantir does. They take these kind of, I don't want to call them AI. What we're really talking about here is computerized neural networks, computer neural networks, employing that technology to allow the military and the intelligence agencies to take a vast amount of data that they have on a topic that they are querying or trying to figure out and pull out the useful information to answer the question that they're trying to answer. That's what the technology does. It's not that mystical, but it has been something in which the CIA has employed uh, Palantir's technology in cases where they said, we know so much about fill-in-the-blank terrorist, we just don't know where he is. We have all this data, we just can't interpret it. We can't put it together and, and draw out and extract the useful information. They put it all into a Palantir system. And then they locate the terrorist two hours later, and he's hit in a drone strike the next day. That Yes, that has happened. It's a bit frightening to think about. It's a bit uh, unnerving in some sense. But it's especially unnerving given the remarks that, that Alex Karp, the CEO of Palantir, made at Davos. So listen to this here. This is, Al, this is Peter Thiel's co-founder of Palantir, now the CEO Peter Thiel, of course, a conservative, or so he says, donates a lot of money to Republicans. Listen to this. Look, we built PG, which single-handedly stopped uh, uh, the rise of the far right in, 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 in Europe. We built Foundry, which uh, was, just, was used to distribute the COVID vaccine and saved millions of lives globally. We built what we call multi-constellation, and what's often called the digital kill chain. Um, and their category defining products. So when you deliver these products to the market, just honestly, people say this isn't going to exist, this isn't right. valuable, but then it changes the market. And then the market is the Palantir market. Now that doesn't mean everyone in the world is going to buy our product, but it means most of the sensible people in the world are going to define, buy from the category we defined. So there you go. We're talking about buying from the category they defined. And, and they did define the category. Now they've got some competitors. I don't know whether they're actually still the category leader or not. It's hard to say. A lot of that business is classified. I speak to people in the agencies. They say it's a, their products are about on par with the other products, sometimes better, sometimes worse. But there he is. He's talking about how Palantir Gotham single-handedly dismantled the, and defeated the far right in Europe. He doesn't really elaborate but now I know I've got a new topic to look into and figure out what the hell he means. He talks about how his other products help distribute the COVID vaccine. What that really means in a true sense is it's, it's a logistics platform. I mean, one of the tough things is how do you ship a million packages around the world and make sure they get where they 
are supposed to go. And when one gets lost, how in the hell do you find it? Well, they have platforms that help do that. That's their foundry platform. And then he talks about the digital kill chain. This is something that's being used in Ukraine in mass to uh, take apart what's going on there. And one of the things that it can do is if you have a lot of unencrypted signals intelligence or a lot of unencrypted signals that are being tracked down, as is the case in Ukraine by the Russians, they're, they're using a lot of cell phones, using unencrypted radios. It can, If you have that many things that are unencrypted, it can render what is encrypted worthless because if you can build a giant web of, of 10,000 unencrypted communications and then you have 40 that are encrypted, all of the context clues and the unencrypted communications in that web can tell you within reason what the encrypted communications are actually saying. You can reasonably make the guess. It's like, well, that person told that person this 10 times before, and then they told them this 10 times after. And these two in the middle are encrypted. So chances are those two that are encrypted are maybe sort of something like this in context of all these other clues. Obviously, it's, a, it's an oversimplification. So this is what AI is really good for. In my view, AI is really good when you have a data set that you know about, you're certain about, you're you're keyed into the propriety of. And then the problem you face is trying to make useful uh, inferences about what's in that data. And that's what I think AI is really good for. Now, you have these more consumer-facing uses of AI. We know about ChatGPT. I'm going to talk about that a bit more. But one of the uses of it uh, is in trying to create new images, new art. Uh, There was talk that, you know, if AI can create an image of a baseball team or player or something, maybe they'll put stock image businesses out of business. Maybe they'll just put them out of business. Well, there's a new lawsuit out uh, by Getty Images against one of these firms. But first, I just want to mention here, I'd be remiss not to, another report out of Peter Thiel. I had already written this segment. And then we have a new report out today uh, that suggests Thiel was dumping their eight-year position in Bitcoin. Uh, This report is out of World News era, but it's been published in multiple different outlets. The report says here, Uh, It is titled, Peter Thiel's Fund Wound Down Eight-Year Bitcoin Bet Before Market Crash. And the report says, Founders Fund, the venture capital firm co-founded by billionaire Peter Thiel, closed almost all of its eight-year bet on cryptocurrencies shortly before the market began to crash last year, generating about $1.8 billion in returns. The San Francisco-based fund made its first investment in Bitcoin in early 2014 and went on to invest large sums in crypto. About two-thirds of its overall investment was used to buy Bitcoin, people close to the fund said. Founders Fund sold out of the vast majority of its entire cryptocurrency portfolio by the end of March 2022, before the digital assets market swept got swept up in a crisis in May of last year, said one, said one person close to the fund. Uh, the fund currently has no significant exposure to cryptocurrencies, the people said. So, you know, once again, the smart money was out at the right time. It's kind of like Elon Musk dumping a huge sum of Tesla shares in in late 21. Now, I think it's a little bit different, though, because Elon Musk is fully invested in Tesla, obviously. 
I mean, to the extent that he sells billions of shares because he needs some billions of cash to do something like, I don't know, buy Twitter or do something else, is not really relevant when he's still effectively fully invested. I don't think it's a strong signal when somebody like Musk does that. Now, when you have somebody who's not a founder, who's like a for hire CEO and he's being paid and then he starts dumping his shares, I think that can be a good signal. Now, the, the really vexing and critical part of this report on Teal and him winding down his Bitcoin position is this, is that as they were dumping all of this Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies, they were still talking about how they loved cryptocurrencies publicly. They didn't want to talk down the prices at which they were selling this garbage that we call cryptocurrency. In April 2022, about the same time that Founders Fund sold out of most of its cryptocurrency holdings, Thiel said that he was optimistic about the future of Bitcoin. He told a cryptocurrency conference in Miami, we're at the end of the fiat money regime and suggested its price, which was then trading at about 44000 could increase by a factor of 100. Thiel said JP Morgan, Chief Executive Jamie Dimon, and BlackRock boss Larry Fink need to be allocating some of their money to Bitcoin, adding, we need to push them back uh, we need to push back on them. So as they are dumping billions of dollars of Bitcoin and other crypto back into the market, he's at a conference at that very same time saying that Bitcoin could go up 100x. He's optimistic in it. And uh, meanwhile, he didn't just sell some. Selling some is one thing. As I said, people have to reallocate cash. People have to pay tax obligations in other parts of their portfolio. It's very complicated. I don't knock people for doing that. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think that everybody's out to get everyone. I, I, I'm not, that's not my bent. That's not my bias when I cover these kinds of stories. But what I'm saying here is that in April 2022, about the same time that Founders Fund sold out of most of its cryptocurrency holdings, Thiel was saying he's optimistic. He was saying he could go up 100x. He said, we're, end of the fiat, we're at the end of the fiat money regime. And it's like, if that's true, if he really thought that he was at the that we were at the end of the fiat money regime, then why did he sell all of the Bitcoin and crypto, some eight billion dollars worth, and traded for fiat? Now, one innocent explanation. That's right. Let's look for the innocent explanation. What do you think that might be? Rack your brain. What could be one innocent explanation? For this entire, what looks like a very deceptive thing, probably not illegal, probably not. He can probably twist it and say that, you know, he didn't affect the price with his comments. He wasn't aiming to manipulate the market. He is actually optimistic, so he wasn't lying at that time, but he just, you know, this was separate and apart from his optimism. What's one innocent explanation? Somebody says here, portfolio companies in the chat. Yes. Here's another uh, more and even more innocent explanation I'm going to give you. Maybe the fund was winding down. Maybe the fund was just winding down. So what happens in Silicon Valley? Uh, Peter Thiel's obviously a very successful venture capitalist. Of course, he was part of the PayPal mafia as part of an early founder in PayPal, involved with Elon Musk and uh, David Sachs and some of the others at PayPal that grew that company, ultimately sold it. 
uh, made out like bandits. They've all gone on to be very successful. There were others there as well that have been very successful. Uh, and he, I mean, to give you an instance, I, I think he put something like 500,000 of his own money into Facebook very early and turned 500,000 into like $8 billion or $12 billion. Some percentage of that he somehow worked into his Roth IRA, I think. And so it's like, he somehow either deferred or prepaid or whatever he did with the taxes on it. That's an old story. I, I don't want to misquote the precise details of the way he did this, but he holds like five billion of that position in a retirement account, and that has generated great controversy. People calling for it to be seized and all of this. Okay, so that's uh, what is happening there. But what, what I'm saying is he's a very successful venture capitalist. He's been very successful. He's raised several funds. He tried to get into the hedge fund global macro trading game in public securities and derivatives with a fund called Clarium Capital that he started. I had a friend that worked there, um, a friend who was like 12, 15 years older than me, and, and he had worked there for a short period of time when that was open. That didn't work out so hot, but he's a hell of a venture capitalist. He made incredible venture capital investments. So, of course, Palantir is one of them. What I'm saying is that he's running a venture capital fund. What happens is that they raise money for these funds. The funds have a shelf life. A lot of times the shelf life is, say, 10 years. And so the idea is, you know, give us your money or at least put it in a standby escrow account or at least commit it, depending on, you know, how much they can trust the investor. What we're going to do is we're going to invest it in, say, 40 companies. And we think that we're going to make 100 times our money on at least one of them, but hopefully two, three, or four of them. And on the other 39 to 36 of them, we're probably going to lose everything. We may get our money back plus a little, but we're probably going to lose it all. And then once that happens uh, and those companies grow and develop, at the end of the 10-year fund, at the end of that 10-year period of time, sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's 12 or 15, but usually it's about 10 years. At the end of that, as we get close, what we'll do is We'll have either a vote or I will I will just decide or you'll be able to decide. And then what we will do is that we will um, dole out whatever's left in the fund. So if you have shares of like all those junky companies that aren't worth anything, sometimes they'll sell them back to the founder for a dollar just to make the books easier and they don't have to transfer those all out to the investors. They'll do that sometimes. Um Sometimes they'll actually have to transfer them out, which is a pain in the butt. Usually they just sell them back to the founders for a buck. That happened with like Gumroad, for instance. They bought back their shares from the VC for a buck, and then they went and raised money again, which was kind of interesting. Um, sometimes they have provisions for selling all the stock into cash. Uh, and that can be a little tough because now you have tax obligations that are owing to the fact you've now sold the securities. If the companies have gone public... A lot of times what will happen is then they'll dole out the shares because it's very easy. Here's your shares of Uber. Uber's public now. Here's your shares of uh, DoorDash. DoorDash is public now or, or whatever the case might be. Uh, sometimes they'll do that. But the point is the fund winds down. The fund has an end of life. It, it winds down however that happens. I can imagine a situation in which Bitcoin wound down or, or they had a position in Bitcoin. The fund was winding down. 
And it wasn't practical to send out all that Bitcoin to these investors in their funds, some of whom are institutions, some of whom don't have wallets, some of them won't set up wallets. It's like not going to work. And so they don't have a choice but to wind down their whole position. Now, owing to their fiduciary duty to their investors, they can't say in the market publicly they're going to go out and sell $8 billion. And maybe Thiel actually is optimistic, and maybe he does still hold Bitcoin personally, but he was just winding down a fund and had no choice uh, but to sell out the Bitcoin and other cryptos. That is one innocent explanation that could explain all of this. And again, it's not the kind of depth of analysis that you're going to get on other shows because they don't have the sorts of expertise and, and background knowledge that I have. They're not as well-read as I am at a minimum. And um, they don't realize this stuff. So the report here about, you know, Getty suing this company, basically there was this company that uh, had, you know, promised to generate images, stock images with AI. Uh, here's the report here from, from Getty Images. Uh, it's titled... This is from The Verge. Getty Images is suing Stability AI, creators of popular AI art tool Stable Diffusion, over alleged copyright violation. The issue here really was that they were using Getty's library of images to train their AI. And they weren't just using them to train the AI. Obviously, they were just reconglomerating the images. They produced a bunch of junky looking images of like football players playing baseball. They looked like blob mongoloid weird things. It, it was really strange. You can look at this full report to see some more examples of it. But in some cases, the actual Getty watermark or some bits and pieces of it were still left in the image. Kind of like when Trump ripped off to make the, those NFTs that he made or whoever made them for him and he licensed to. They had the Getty image thing still left in, in one part of the image that they had obviously used. Uh, I don't know why they didn't just pay for the license for it. But this is part of what I think is going to be a much bigger trend. This suit is going to be fired, uh, filed in London, probably because of what they see as favorable uh, you know, laws in the UK concerning this kind of stuff. But this is going to be part of a big thing. Even when you look at ChatGPT, this is going to be a major trend. Uh, if ChatGPT is telling you what the best barbecue restaurant is in your area, and it's pulling from Yelp data to do that, and then they're making money from it, to what degree have they now ripped off Yelp's data that Yelp, in their own disclosure, says this data, this review, all of this belongs to us. What degree is ChatGPT then taking that review? Like you can take the review and make a determination about it, but then they're re-monetizing it. They're making money from Yelp's proprietary information without any kind of licensing agreement. This is going to be something in which you're going to see settlements, but probably, hopefully, we get actual new case law on the Fair Use Act of 1972. And... Um, you know, you're, you're going to get new law around all this, but it is going to put, I think, a hamper in chat GPT and a lot of these other uh, platforms that are uh, basically taking other people's data and they're not merely scraping it and saying, here's, here you go, consumer. No, they're re-monetizing it. In other words, they're, they're drawing out commercial value that is owed to the person they took the data from. Or is it? And that's going to be the case law dispute, I think, that that will happen. There will be instances where settlements are paid. There'll be instances where people say, let's just, you know, instead of suing each other, let's all make some money with this. Here's a licensing agreement. Send us 10% or pay us this and use our data. And that's what's going to come out of this in a big sense. There's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, some is it, it, the, the end product is greater than the sum of its parts. There's going to be a lot of those kinds of instances. So a lot of this is going to work out. 
but it is interesting to see. And as I again, as I said in the beginning of this AI breakdown, I think that the best use of AI, which again, I don't think this stuff is really intelligent. It's just really novel, useful employment of computer neural networks, but whatever you want to call it, we'll call it AI as a euphemism. The real usefulness of it is you've got a ton of data in your company. Let's make something useful out of it. And let's do so with the marginal cost of compute, as they say in Silicon Valley, or the cost of carrying out computer functions, in other words, of of computing, being so low and the power being so high and the bandwidth to transmit between you and the cloud being so large that you can actually farm this out. So it's kind of like what MicroStrategy, Michael Saylor's firm did in the 90s and early 2000s, but principally started up in the late 80s and 90s where they could take like Victoria's Secret, all their retail data, tell them, look, send more large bras here, send more small bras there because you're going to have leftover inventory if you don't. Here's the trend. They're, They're doing that, but you can do so much more now because the cost of having the computer run those functions is so much lower. And then they can be off site in the cloud, transmit all of that back and forth because you have fiber everywhere. And it really becomes in today's world, something where the economies of scale make sense to have offsite platforms interpret proprietary data. And soon as computers get better, as you have advances in material science, which is really what the bottleneck is now in my view, just like when you had tube computers, computers employing tubes, analog computers versus, uh, you know, true silicon, uh, transistors, you know, microprocessors, Uh, you had a material science breakthrough that led to a compute breakthrough that enabled so much more with the same amount of energy and the same amount of exhaust or heat. I think you need another breakthrough in material sciences to really kick this off. But then you could have this kind of power on your home computer. And then you could make a whole lot out out of data in your life that you just can't hope to piece together now. Useful inferences from incomprehensibly vast and deep troves of data. That is the real opportunity, I think. In the meantime, people ripping off each other's data, proprietary data, people's pictures, that's going to have to be litigated. We'll see where it lands. I have to run here onto a conference call at 2.30. It's 2.28 now. I had another whole segment for you. It's going to have to wait till the next show. It's not time sensitive. It's going to wait till the next show. And that next show will be Monday, 2 p.m. Eastern time, guys. I, I really appreciate your financial contributions to the show. You know, I'm just buried in legal fees with these fights I'm in uh, against, you know, predators that are coming back after us that we busted on Predator DC and, and left-wing rogue prosecutors all over the country. I appreciate you guys chipping in. Uh, it, it's just so appreciated. Uh, I've got book recommendations I got to put out on the next episode and you name it. 229 here. I got to run. Uh, thanks so much. Cash app, Real Jacob Bull. Cash app, Real Jacob Bull, or jacobbull.org slash podcast. Thanks so much. And I will see you Monday, 2 p.m. Eastern time, podcast app shortly thereafter, live here on YouTube. Thanks so much for joining me.